Hey, it's Margot Tantow here. Welcome to Windowsill Chats, a podcast for creatives and the creatively curious. I am so glad you're here. I've spent decades working with artists and being one myself. I've spent time in the trenches, figuring out the best way to get something made, how to put oneself out there, how to get your work noticed, and pull yourself up and face the next challenge. Windowsill Chats brings you creativity from a global perspective, as I talk in depth to friends I've met along the way. I'm here to bring their stories to you, as well as a few of my own, and see if there's anything you can pull out for yourself. Maybe a laugh, something you can relate to, and definitely a little bit more community for your quiet corner. So grab a cup of tea or coffee or a glass of wine and join me over in my sunny windowsill. Yes, I need your trouble. lovelies. Thanks for making your way back to my sunny windowsill. Today is a good one. I'm chatting with the wonderful, talented, amazingly creative Molly Hatch. Licensing, making, creating, what's the future? What's your future? Molly shares how she made her way in the world of designing product and how she'd really rather not leave any trace behind. Plus, we talk a little bit about an exciting new brand partnership, new clothes with Molly Hatch. But before I go there, I want to read a podcast review for you today that is from the very lovely Chunny Bun, all the way from Bangkok. It's entitled Best Podcast for Any Creative Professional. Windowsill Chats is probably my favorite podcast at the moment that has the right balance of business, creativity, inspiration, and advice for any creative, whether you're just starting your new career to working in the industry for a long time and want some fresh insights. Margot keeps it real, and there's always something to learn from every episode. It would make a great Netflix show, actually. Thanks, Jenny Bun, and thanks so much for listening and sending me that really lovely message. Today, as I mentioned, I am talking with the wonderful Molly Hatch. Molly is an artist, designer, and ceramicist, and she began her career as a studio potter, infusing her tableware and home decor items with contemporary sensibilities and classical charm. The daughter of a painter and an organic dairy farmer, Molly draws from the beauty of everyday objects by imagining where each will live. I love that idea. A cake stand may become a marker of birthdays and celebrations. A weekend tote may see countless trips to the farmer's market. Their repeated use creates a story to be treasured for generations. With a formal education in ceramics and drawing, Molly launched her first tableware collection from her home studio in 2010, not that long ago. Her signature blend of 18th century aesthetics with modern whimsy quickly garnered a loyal following, launching her brand into a wide range of lifestyle products for the home. Today, Molly Hatch collections can be found through the brand's partnerships with retailers worldwide. Molly works from her studio in Florence, Massachusetts, where she continues to hone her craft and make the traditional new again. And I want to share a little bit of what what Molly says about her fantastic new collaboration with Joni Clothing. 
Molly says, when approached with the opportunity to collaborate with Joni to design my first clothing collection, it was clear from the outset that the Joni brand would be a fabulous partner to debut my apparel. Joni's use of sustainable fabrics and their aim to create slow fashion with designs that are versatile throughout the season is absolutely in line with the goals I have for the Molly Hatch brand moving forward. Joni loves a good vintage vibe with a modern twist, and so does Molly Hatch, a match made in heaven. I think if you passionately believe in something and you persist, that it will work out. And I've seen the clothes. I've touched them. I've worn some. They are fantastic. Of course, the patterns are fantastic. That's great. Um, and the vintage vibe is going strong. It's It just seems like such a perfect match. I also wanted to mention, you guys, I'm running a contest. You know why? Because Windowsill Chats is about to hit 50,000 downloads. That's 5-0. That just makes me so happy. It means you're listening. It means, you know, something's touching you. These stories are things you can relate to. So hop on over to my Instagram at mtantau or windowsill chats and tag a friend about it or leave a review at Apple. Or also you could jump on my mailing list. Any of those things will enter you in a drawing for gifts from previous windowsill chats guests or a wonderful shop canvas overhead light for recording the art you're making. I thought that would be a good one. Anyway, thank you. Thank you for being here. And here's to many more times. Happy to be talking to my friend Molly today. Hello, Molly Hatch. Hello, Margot Tanto. <laughs> Thanks for being here. I haven't caught up with you for way too long. So I'm I'm looking forward to doing it on air, I guess I should say. Yeah, likewise. I mean, we've had we've known each other a while. So um it's really nice to be able to have a reason to talk to you in public. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And you have really cool things happening, which we'll get to. Um, but it was interesting because I was looking at Molly um, sent me some pictures, you know, because I like to put a picture on of the person I'm talking to. And she's in this cute denim jumpsuit. It made me think, oh, my gosh, the first time I met Molly, she was in this cute blue and white jumpsuit from Anthropology. And now we have news for you about other clothes. So we'll get, I'm, that's just a teaser. <laughs> Well, it's an exciting announcement we get to make. Yeah, exactly. And I love that you got to help me do that. That's so great. Thank you. I'm excited too. It's a perk. So winding the clock back because I just, you know, it's interesting. I, I talk about you probably more than you would realize because when I'll, I'll be telling people about, you know, the journeys and the creative paths of others. And I obviously be like, Molly, you know, when she did this and this was her art and then she got into anthropology and she, so I'd love to hear it from your point of view instead of, instead of mine. But I always just so appreciate you forged a path for many others and you've certainly done it your own way. And um, let's hear a little bit more about that. So yeah, I I definitely came from a creative family in its in a in its own sense. Um, my parents are both dairy farmers, like politically motivated dairy farmers in the eighties, and they started a dairy farm. Uh, my mother met my father when she was like nineteen and left art school to go. She went to RISD and she was a painting major, and she fell in love and ran off to be a dairy farmer instead. So, um, awesome. yeah, I, you know, my parents, my mom was the Vermont Organic Farming Association president for eight years, and that was a really, it was a, it was a back to the earth, hippie motivated thing for them, and that's really informed a lot of my life decisions um, about how to make change happen, actually. So 
I think that it was a really important and interesting lesson that kind of came in different packaging than you might expect, but it's something that I've applied to my own career and I can talk more about that. But it's been really amazing having the support of a family who, you know, I mean, I sort of the follow your bliss, you'll make it work one way or another kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, my grandmother was a independently wealthy, but painted pe- portraits of people's homes in watercolor and my great grandmother painted and there's always been a decorative arts and art history appreciation in our family too. So mm. um, at least on my mother's side of the family. So that's always been part of it. But I think the big thing about like growing up on a farm is that you kind of realize that you can make things happen. Like we didn't have any money growing up despite sort of being descended of wealth. Like there was a lot of cabbage and beef in my life <laughs> and potatoes. <laughs> but you like ate what was on the farm, right? So yeah, lots of dairy, which is um, yeah. <laughs> always good. But now I'm like, I can't, you know, like me and dairy don't have like a yeah. love affair anymore. But I think that I when I wanted something, I would make a version of it or make it or if I coveted something, I kind of had to like figure out how to make it myself. And I think that sort of industriousness and sort of mm-hmm. drive to have things that I wanted anyway, figure it out or get a job to earn the money to buy it or whatever it was. Right. It was sort and of, you're used to working hard. You yeah. can't live on a farm and not know how right. to work hard and get things done. And you have a good example set to you about what work ethic, you know, like my parents were entrepreneurial in the sense that they were farmers Mm -hmm. and they were, they own their own business. And I understood, you know, that there's like, you know, feast and famine and like all those things. So I sort of intuited, I think a lot of that business acumen that I've any, whatever I've got, it's been intuited really over the years or, or, Mm -hmm. you know, (laughs) trial and error. A lot of error, probably. <laughs> <There's that. laughs> um, yeah, so I, I, that's sort of where I come from. Grew up in Vermont and um, small town, kind of, you know, classic, whatever you would imagine Vermont is probably like pastoral <laughs> Vermont with lots of yep. vegetables and everything. That's really my childhood. Although we ate a lot of tempeh sandwiches. We were definitely like the weird kids at school. <laughs> like, <laughs> kids will only trade a tempeh sandwich once and then they're like, mm, yeah, <laughs> those are not good. <laughs> I could so relate to that. My mom being so well-meaning. Um, it, I was the one with the whole wheat bread yeah. and the, you know, nobody else. Everybody else had Wonder Bread. I, I was you. like, nope. <laughs> a fluffer daughter sandwich was like my dream come true. It was like, <laughs> Twink- I, I would have given anything for oh, a Twinkie. Or but a no, little uh-uh, Debbie Swiss happening. roll. I mean, I still remember <laughs> this is how, you know, I'd like covet other people's. Um, and so, I mean, I, I wasn't actually sure that I wanted to be an art. I mean, I art, that's not true. I always wanted to be an artist, but I wasn't sure what kind of like application of that career I wanted because you know I just I was worried that it wasn't going to make me a living and I didn't have an example of that um uh, you Mm -hmm. know and you're just told it's a fantasy right like your whole like sort of the starving artist you know um no you really are you're really deterred from that totally 100% and like a lot of people's parents don't support them through it and it's like there's so many applications we need artists and like I mean every web design you know, I mean, there's just so much need for visual information these days that it's like crazy to think that you couldn't make a living somehow as an artist because there's so much demand for it. Um, and I think we know what that looks like more because, you know, we can see it on our phones. You know, when we're when you're on a dairy farm or for me, similarly, rural northern California, you're you're just like 
but I have to know about business or something practical, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, that's all, it was all in like encyclopedias and art history books. It was all like dead men that were artists, right? Like <laughs> yes, it wasn't it was. like, there was yeah. like the odd Frida Kahlo or whatever, but it was like, well, you know, I, it, there wasn't a lot of, uh, yeah. I, I, really old photographers. Yeah. Beautiful, but not, not applicable, but I was, you know, it just, they all that felt that art that we were studying felt so ancient, you know, and so far away and so untouchable. And, and now it feels a lot more relatable. So how did you dig into that? Well, the only school that gave me a scholarship was the museum school in Tufts University. So I went there. <laughs> it was like there a pretty obvious answer. I was like a 50% scholarship yep. everywhere else I went to was like, had applied to was like, you know, pseudo Ivy League school, I had some pretty high lofty goals for myself. Um, and I, you know, I wasn't that kind of student. I mean, I, I did go to Dartmouth College for a minute, and it really wasn't for me. And so it really answered the question that I needed pursue this. Mm -hmm. So Tufts and the museum school have a relationship and now Tufts owns the museum school in Boston. And uh, I went to the museum school because of the academic component that Tufts offered. And that was really great. And I think it did do a lot for me in that sense. But I, you know, the museum school is one of those schools where you don't really have to um, declare a major. Like you just, or at, at the time there was no like foundations. It was just sort of like you, you created your own curriculum, which was like, you know, very 1960s of it. And a lot of the professors had been there that it was very experimental and, you know, for better or worse. And for me, it just meant that I, I tried everything, but like didn't really concentrate on anything except for drawing and painting. I figured was like sort of the foundation of whatever I was going to do. And boy, did I get that right for myself. But I dabbled in ceramics and it was my last year there that I, <clears throat> a sort of watershed professor came through. It was all male professors. There was a lot of the classic things that you would imagine going on between students and professors. And you had to go, there there was no like registration online you had to like take your portfolio to a professor and like show it to them in person and then they decide on the spot okay. whether or not you could get and they already had like pre-registered half the class of like the hot girls that were you know it was so gross it really was like I mean I'm making a thing of it but it really felt that way well, at the time so probably that's how it worked I'm sure that because it felt that way <laughs> I don't yeah know. <laughs> probably there was so I think you know the this visiting professor was a woman, Kathy King. She now runs the program at Harvard. And she came in with these like biker boots and like a Betty Page hairdo. And I was like, whoa, nice. you know, like, yeah. the, <laughs> like the wind blew back the minute she walked in the door. Yeah. And I was like, I want to, whatever she's got going on, I think is going to be <laughs> yeah. good for me. And so she just really showed me that I could do my drawings of my pottery. And yeah. that for me was like, oh, I'm taking what my mom, my the painting, my mom loves and painting and drawing that I love and putting it literally on the, the earth, which my dad loves. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah. I sort of made, a, you know, I wasn't that conscious of that at the time, but I think that, that there really is something to that sort of metaphor yeah. of like marrying the different sort of disparate parts of myself in the medium that I chose. That's how fantastic and how lucky and, you know, timely to have her walk into your life and, and help you oh figure that all out because it, it definitely works. Every once in a while, I don't know if anyone else does this, but every once in a while I send like a thank you note to previous mentors or um, mm. people who really changed my life or, or I remember occasionally, you know, and I, I like will send a note and just say thank you um, randomly, like every 10 years or something. It's not like very often, but it's yeah. like, thank you so much for what you did for me. And I, 
there have been a few people along the way that I find that I just am so grateful for the patience they had with me as like a know-it-all 20 something or like whatever, you know, like amazing to to think that they kind of hung in there and supported me and that I really wouldn't be here without all of those people along the way. It's really, I love that thought. There really are those people. Could you you imagine getting a letter from someone and not just an email, but like a a note that would be like, thank you so much. Wouldn't it be amazing? And you'd be like, I didn't even know that I did that for you, but so cool. Right. I know. I'm just thinking of uh, a few right now that I'm going to write a note. to. Right. Like totally random. No, no like birthday or event or anything. Just uh, like, thank you. It's your Academy Award except speech thing yeah you know that we'll never get as a ceramic artist <laughs> that's pretty that's wonderful I love that tip that's a good one so then did you go on from that I mean because you achieved some high visibility pretty quickly in your well so I did my undergraduate and then I actually took five years between undergraduate and graduate school I had my master's and I was a professor for a while and I went on after undergrad to to apprentice for a studio potter in Vermont and long story short I was like wow I'm already in pain and I'm like 22 this is like a disaster Mm -hmm. and also I hate repeating myself I'm bored and I'm gonna get in trouble like with drugs and alcohol if I don't like (laughs) like, do something more constructive and think thinking um using my brain a little more academically um in my work. So I pursued a graduate degree and um, thought I was going to be a professor because that felt like the only other option that was really presented to me. Cause like, let's be honest, like a showing career in a gallery world, which I have achieved, which is like, you know, one in a million dream come true. Wasn't like, I was like, that's not in the scope of reality. Like how the hell can I even, like, mm-hmm. I can set my cap at that, but like, let's just hope that happens someday. Right. <laughs> and so well, and like you said, it, there there has to be, you're a, such a thinker. And is that going to be enough even? Right. If you, even if achieving that. So I got my master's degree from the University of Colorado. And I went there be- largely because Betty Woodman was a professor who started the program there, but she left. She was emeritus at the time. She's now passed. But um, mm-hmm. she really worked on, I could tell already that I needed to think about painting and drawing and ceramics. And she really was working on those concepts in her work. And so I felt like whatever program she started is probably going to, you know, that would help. And I got to meet her a couple of times and that was all very, and she nice. worked, look at my work and things like that. But it was, um, I mean, it was just an, an awesome experience. It was one of the only interviews in graduate school that I went and like came away thinking like I had homework to do. I had magazines to look at and it was like, wow, okay, well, if that could happen in an, an hour long interview, what would happen if I like actually went to school here? So yeah, that's pretty awesome. Um, yeah. So after graduate school, it was 2009, 2008 is when I graduated, um, which is like, you know, <laughs> the economic world blew up <laughs> and there were yes, literally, did. literally two jobs for ceramic professors that year listed. I mean, and I was like me and everybody else, I mean, two for the entire country. So I was like, oh. well, I know how to sell my pots. I had established some relationships with galleries, like craft galleries before um, going to graduate school. And I was making conceptual bodies of work for my thesis and and sculptural bodies of work, which have evolved into my gallery work um, now, but I knew how to make pots. And I mean, there are pots involved in that work too, but I was like, you know, I'm just going to try to sell pots and see what happens. And I got pregnant and I got a residency at the Kohler factory, which is something that all artists should know about. It's Mm -hmm. like a all expenses paid, room and board travel. And you get to like, you get the keys to the factory basically. And you work alongside these 
Wisconsin workers who are making toilets and sinks and you, you know, you get, you just get to work in the facility and make whatever. And they have a technician who helps you if you've never made molds and never used clay. Wow. It was, it was so amazing, but I was pregnant during that whole residency and it paid for room and board. Cause thank God, cause I didn't have any <laughs> work really. <Yeah. laughs> it was, it was incredible, but that actually gave me a show that was put into a catalog at the end of it. And I was, so I was curated into a show at the art center at Kohler, which isn't normal. It was something that just mm. happened to happen. And, um, that propelled things forward pretty quickly. And, um, I'd had a graduate, I submitted my work to a graduate exhibition juried exhibition opportunity at the clay studio in philadelphia which is a gallery that i still um have some really great ties to and i'm actually working on a show right now that's going to be opening up there in their new it's their inaugural exhibition and they're they're putting a new multi-million dollar building up in um, south kensington in uh, philly and i was really honored to be part of oh, this few funded show um and so I've been working on that in my studio now. So it's nice to have that sort of connection still to them. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I I got awarded the show in June and like maybe like two months before the show, I was I was selling all my work in all the galleries that I could and, and craft galleries that I could. And anthropology contacted me about two months before that show opened in like June of 2010. And my daughter was like 10 months old. Huh at the time and we I was on welfare you know like <laughs> with two degrees yeah. I was like this is ridiculous I can't even make I'm selling 120 dollar mugs and I can't even make a living doing this because it takes me yeah. too long to make them and I was really starting to come to like a huge sort of crossroads in my work and deciding how I was mm -hmm. going to move forward um and make my work work for me as a financial yeah. thing and um and what what would you have to do and what would you have to right. sacrifice in your dream or right. what that might look and like. it was like clear to me if I was going to continue to hand make things I was going to have to change my process to a process that was faster and more economic and there I was again like repeating myself and not I was a studio potter right. I wasn't right. doing what I had sort of set out to do as a I was a professor I did actually start teaching at a local community college that fall after and it was really it was life-changing that and the anthropology approaching me were both very life-changing yeah. things and at the same time a gallery was approaching me about the work that was in that show um in philadelphia and so a bunch of things happened all at once it really was like sort of um a, a convergence of things all starting at the same time i didn't realize they, uh, that had all started really at the same time that's that's kind of mind-bending must have been it was quite a time yeah it was like you know okay a lot and a lot of it you don't know what to trust or how to right you know it was like so it's all new yeah and and at the time like you know and also in academia i mean working with someone like anthropology was absolutely villainized it was like i complete remember sellout. talking to you about this You've totally yeah. undermined your entire education and you're like, you don't want to make stuff for a, you know, gift shop kind of thing. And it was like, I had to really dig deep and figure out what it, why I make my work, whether it was going to compromise the concept or the sort of integrity of the idea to have it manufactured or would it make it still work as a prop, uh, as a pot. But basically mm -hmm. anthropology came to the opening of the show, long story short the buyer um, came and, and with, you know, an entourage, they don't come alone ever. Um, 
No. And I had like, they'd emailed me and I was like, it was sort of like this classic thing of, wait, really? <laughs> this is, yeah. they wanted to collaborate. And I, you know, it was really early days. They were only like collaborating yeah. with a couple of, I think maybe Rebecca Rebuchet, myself and like mm-hmm. Natalie Latay. Like, I think there were yeah. like really few artists in the home section that they had art. Like, they were, and they did it much differently then. Yes. Um, Yes. And they didn't have like a whole program or, or a contact there that worked specifically with artists. That was actually a program I helped them set up. I told them they needed to do it because it was so ridiculous (laughs) that they didn't have a point, one point of contact. I was going to like meeting, I was setting up my own meetings with everybody. It was totally nuts. But, um, I used to sell to them in in my past life when I had wholesale in the early years. And yeah, it was, you know, you have to get things in there the right way. And I remember flying to Philadelphia to go out into Lambert, whatever county it was to make sure the right barcodes were on, you know, way, way back in the day. But, um, but I, I remember talking to you a lot about, you know, because you're such a thinker and you're such an ID ideator idea person how I'm sure that that helped you in your relationship with them so let's let's go back to that because people we have people on the edge of their chair right now wanting to know I'm sure they are I mean I got this email and it was kind of like getting asked out by a cute boy or something like where for me it was a cute boy but um you know I I was like wait do I respond immediately or do I seem busy like do I wait two days (laughs) like I waited two days I got back to them and was like, I'm so busy that I need to wait two days to reply. But I had to really kind of think about like, is this something I wanted? I mean, of course, it's something I wanted to do. I was such a huge fan of the brand and um, had been for years. Um, And I, so I replied and said, here's the thing. Like, I would love to work with you. I can't wholesale to you because I'm already killing myself doing what I'm doing. And it's just not going to be price effective. Like it just won't work for me but I know that you do these you know you license I didn't know what licensing was but I sort of you know I know you you have these other people design things for you to manufacture and I would like to consider doing that and then they didn't really get back and so then I told them I had this show opening in June and I you know I persisted I thought maybe you know like in our world in the gallery world or the way I was trained you don't push a gallery you drop off your work they'll think of you and if they get back to you they get back to you you don't like you're not a battering ram. Like you're not, you don't keep going mm-hmm. back. You don't remind them and put your email at the top of their pile. They'll like disregard right. you. Whereas in, that is actually the opposite of what you should be doing <laughs> when it comes Correct. to getting your work licensed by a company like Anthropology. So I, thankfully my intu- intuition told me to contact them and say, Hey, on the off chance that you want to come to this opening of my work, it's at the clay studio. It's in town where you are, you know, you're based. So yeah. it wouldn't be much and you can come and meet me and we can talk about what's possible. And so of course they came and it was great. And they, they left the opening, you know, I was completely like, like, you know, there with my 10 month old and aunts and uncles and like, you know, this like, yeah. you know, first major show out of graduate school kind of thing or second oh. or whatever. And feeling, you know, I'm like putting my heart, you know, it's like this major leap for me, the sculptural work. It's the first body, big body of work after my, my master's thesis and sort of an entree into gallery world. Big deal. Yeah. And they were like, so excited about what I was doing. And they were like, we want to do these mm-hmm. mugs and we love the idea of doing a dinnerware service with you. And they sent me home and I was like, oh my gosh, now I'm designing and I have no idea how to do that. 
<laughs> I mean, I was, I would, I have drawn and painted, drawing and painting is like I said, it was always something that was sort of foundational for me and I knew how to do it, but I had spent so much time up until that point, like focused on ceramics only. And all my drawing and painting was done on ceramics. And so I had developed an aesthetic that I was known for, which is what they were responding to. But it was like, suddenly I felt right. like I had to make that on paper. Mm-hmm. And it was like, oh gosh, like, how do I translate what I'm doing in clay and that same look and the same process and the same feeling into something on paper. And, um, I, it took me like a month to figure it out. And it was really obvious because I was using calligraphy pens to carve into the surface of the clay and make the marks that I was making. Mm. So I was like, oh, well, just mm. pen and ink and then co- do that. color it in the same way you would color in your pots. Like just do the same thing just on paper. Um, yeah. And so I developed- Because they needed that in order to send that over and make that happen, make the product happen. Right. That's what we thought. <laughs> And so I also made a bunch of prototypes because I was making new shapes, which is really a large part of why they were interested in collaborating because they, you know, most of the time you have whatever the factory makes as shapes that you can use. And if you're bringing a new shape, then you're adding something really new to the marketplace. And that's really exciting because like a lot of people will just put a pattern on something that pre-exists and know that you become a teacher. You're then teaching the factory. Right. Um, And, and I, I've, I have to say, you know, I early on, you know, I'm a, I was a beta pinner way, way back, but I think literally, I was just thinking about this. I think one of the first pins I ever pinned was your teacups hanging. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's and that, that was that show. iconic picture. That was that show. Mm-hmm. So it was in design sponge. Like it got a lot mm-hmm. of good press and that was the show that anthropology saw that they wanted. Yeah. They were like, yes, we want this. Yeah. There were mugs with a drawing of a teacup on them. Cause I'm a mug user, but I love the aesthetic of the 18th century. Teacup, right. So it was like, so how do you make something old new again or fit your life? And that's been a long-term recipe for how I make my work, but, and it fit, it was like a perfect marriage with anthropology, obviously like, you know, 10 years and 500 projects later, like <laughs> it was a good fit. Well, and the thing too, is that they're a company, um, you know, I've, I've never worked for them. I've only worked with them, but they're a company that is willing to take the steps needed to produce those kind of products. And not everybody can afford to do that. Not everybody has the clientele and the uh, it doesn't always work. But I remember so many times, and it was when I was um, living in Kansas City. So I remember the the anthro I would go into and I would pick up your piece and I would be like, yes, <laughs> they are, they had to make this mold. They had to use an original because you don't get these lines. Otherwise, you know, it was so for so many years, just like you said, the whole, the factory's ideal was to make something that they deemed perfect. So it was crisp and it didn't look handmade. And it was, you would never have made, you know, the things that you ended up popularizing, you know, the mixing bowls and the measuring cups that was Molly Hatch, you know, in my mind, but I remember seeing it and thinking, oh my gosh, thank you so much for putting these things into the market because that just doesn't happen. Right. You guys listening, it is, does not happen. It's such a process to work with a factory, to get a shape, right. But even more so to have a company who has the patience and believes in you mm-hmm. enough in the process enough to get that to happen. So that was a perfect combo. Right. And, and as many people know, in the world of licensing ceramics is like probably up there with bedding is like one of the most difficult 
licenses to get um, because their MOQs are so high. So you, they have to order mm -hmm. 3,000 to 5,000 units. And mm -hmm. um, it's really challenging. So that's why I haven't started my own you know, production line of ceramics. Oh, I just don't have gosh. like yes. $2 million laying around to start I my company. Yep. But <laughs> if anyone wants to talk after this, let me know. <laughs> Um, <laughs> venture open to venture capital. <laughs> if only, um, yeah, oh. that would be dreamy. Um, but I think, you know, I think, so the, the things that I had to offer were the fact that I could hand them a prototype that, that the factory didn't have to make from a drawing. It was actually like, make this thing. And I, I made right. the, all the prototypes for that first collection and every other collection after with, you know, the drawings, the way I wanted them on the surface and um, where I wanted them placed. And exactly like, it was literally like telling a factory, there's no translation needed. You just make this exactly yeah. like this. And that's what the Chinese are good at. And the, They're very good at that. And they did. They didn't get that. They would get a sticky note or a piece right. of paper and a drawing. Right. Try this. Right. And then, you know, the, you know, the molds would come back and the sculpts would come back. And from you, they got the actual thing. And that was a beautiful marriage. Right. And so anthropology, I mean, they had a gold mine in that sense and realized that mm -hmm. there's this whole other thing that could happen with potters and mm -hmm. makers that we can make things <laughs> anyway. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, so we launched, uh, I, we, I went to back to Anthropology's home offices, I think it was August or something after the June meeting that I delivered prototypes. And then um, in October, I went back and I brought some other artwork with me. Every time I went, I was like a, a little bit like a Rolex. I say this a lot, but I was like a Rolex salesman. I would be like, oh, you like my pots? I got other pots. Like, <laughs> you want to see the other things that I've got going? I've got like drawings. I've got like other things in case. Just in so case. smart. People listen so, to that and do it. Just in yes. case you want to like <laughs> take it all. And they would like take everything that I brought. Like it was so crazy. Good. It was like, I'd come with bins of pots and they'd be like, yes, yes, yes. You know, um, but that first meeting was so pivotal because I had to decide like on the fly, I'm in this meeting and they're so excited, you know, that, that this is happening. And they're like, but they came back just like your pots. And I was like, yeah, they came back just like my pots. Uh Oh, I have like Ooh, galleries yeah. and like, oh, like, uh -oh <laughs> no, of course the Chinese made my pots like better than I can. And for $16 <sighs> instead of 120. And I was like, uh oh, uh oh, uh oh. You know, like, how do I do this? Yeah. Yeah. Uh oh. I mean, they were better than I could imagine. And they were really excited mm -hmm. in anthropology, but I had to kind of decide on the fly there like, mm -hmm. do, am I going to go through with this? And this means that I can't really be making my pottery in the same way. I have right. to make this licensing thing work. Oh, and, you know, and I don't know what I'm doing there, but I got to, I got to hustle this hard, you know? Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and so I made the decision to go forward with it and buy myself the time. So, you know, to backtrack a little, I had this, you know, gallery show that they went to and saw my work at, um, in the clay studio in June and that fall, um, a gallery, local gallery owner named Leslie Farron is, um, she owns Farron Contemporary and she is, a, um, like the premier ceramic gallery in the country at the time. Um, mm -hmm. There are a couple others that are really focused on just ceramic, but she was really well known for her, her championing of ceramics. And she had a really great collector base and she was really excited about my work. She had seen the work in process and um, a local, I mean, she was like 20 minutes from me. So it just so happened that there, you know, in a roundabout way we got connected and she came and she was watching and she sold out the first show that she did in Chicago at SOFA Chicago, which is like the sculptural object in fine, uh, fine art fair. 
Um, yeah. which is no long, it might still be in Chicago, but it's no longer in New York. Um, so there was a New York one and a Chicago one. And so she sold out show after show after show. Like I was making this work as fast as I could and she kept selling out. And it was like one of those dreamy moments in the fine art world where you're like, oh my God, you know, like I'm onto something here too. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and I only worked with her for two years and it very quickly became clear to me that I needed a gallery that was not just focused on ceramics. That was like a, either a decorative arts gallery or design, decorative arts, fine art, like some something that was going to be a little more mid-tier and a little less entry level mm-hmm. and a little more um, uh, open to showing the work um, across multiple categories. And so I now work with Todd Merrill and I've worked with him since leaving Leslie Farron. Uh, we can give the, your listeners a link, but I, you know, I that work grew alongside this career with anthropology and it was really amazing to have so the money, that first money that came from my first collection was anthropology was like $17,000 or something. It was the most money I had seen ever, really, I think, honestly, that was the biggest check I'd ever gotten. And I was like, I bought a kiln, I bought a new computer, like I had all these deferred costs that I had sort of held off on, because we were literally on welfare, I was like collecting, you know, wick food stamps. And (laughs) it was really tough. Um, I was making work in a basement that flooded every five minutes. And it was just like, I had a little kid, and I would only go to work at night when she was sleeping. I mean, it was like the classic (laughs) story. Hard work. Yeah. And yeah. And focus and, and dream and drive. I think anyone who's successful or appears to be successful on the outside has done that. They put their time in, you know? Yeah. It, it happens because we work so hard to make it happen. Calling all creatives. This episode is brought to you by Relish Your Creativity. What is Relish Your Creativity, do you ask? It's a monthly creative community built by myself and Natalie Shepard to specifically help you imagine and bring to life a vibrant vision for your own creative future. The Relish Your Creative community membership is made up of like-minded creatives who are ready to grow in their artistic endeavors as well as grow a profitable business. Relish Your Creativity is curated to bring you monthly classes where we deep dive into relevant topics, a private Facebook group to connect, share, and learn together, guest speakers, live chats, and a caring community. These are just a few of the perks you'll get when you join in. If you're ready to confidently put your art into the world, feel more comfortable and empowered in the direction you're heading, or spend focused time on your own creative growth, Relish Your Creativity is the membership for you. To learn more, head on over to www.relishyourcreativity.com. That's R-E-L-I-S-H-Y-O-U-R-C-R-E-A-T-I-V-I-T-Y.com. And we can't wait for you to see what we have in store. We are live, so head on over to relishyourcreativity.com. We would so love to see you inside. It's a combination of, like I tell it, like often people ask me like, what's your advice to young artists or whatever? And it's like, well, the big thing, like in my first graduate school seminar, I'll never forget my professor who's, who's since passed from cancer, but he came in and he was like guns blazing, really intense. And he's like, congratulations, you're, 
you're not 85% of the applicant pool. And we were like, what are you talking about? And he was like, basically you're the 15, you're in the 15% who actually got their application filled out correctly. You got it in on time. And, you know, we were like, thanks. It was like deflating. It was like, well, I thought I got here on merit, you know? And he was like, no, you just actually showed up, paid attention and filled out the application wow. correctly. And you were one of the top 25 50, or 15 applicants out of a hundred. And so that's why you're here. And we were like, oh, <laughs> Cool. Okay. Well, I did something right, right. along the way. I mean, there's a lot of truth in that, to be honest with you. Like, I think that so many times we overcommit or we like, you know, everyone's always talking about being late on deadlines. Well, if you can avoid being late on a deadline, people are like, it's amazing working with her. She gets it done. She does what she says she's going to do. Mm -hmm. I don't like change things in the midstream. Like artistic license isn't really something I take very often. Right. There are some very simple things yeah. that'll keep you working. Yeah. 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 And those are like two big ones. Anyway. Um, so I think, you know, I took that money, the work wasn't selling for much in the fine art market. It was selling for plenty, but it, you know, like, let's be honest, like a, in ceramics, I don't know if how many people are aware of this, but in the fine art market, an entry level painting is about $10,000. Like you're an, you're an emerging artist with $10,000 paintings in the fine art market. So if you're going to Miami, Basel, and you're going to walk through, I mean, $10,000 is sort of the bottom of the barrel if you will. And in ceramics, if you can sell a $10,000 piece of ceramics, you've like, you're a blue chip ceramic artist. You've made it to the top tier echelon. I mean, mo it's just not valued the same. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. so interesting. The time still is the same. Oh, or more. I mean, my painting, when I do these plate paintings of mine, I paint them three, four times. Then mm -hmm. I put them in the kiln and hope to God they don't like crack. Ex or, exactly. <laughs> you know, it's, like, it's not like it's a canvas. No, and I can't go back and rework it once I've done that. It's sort of like you're there and that's what it is. And you either live with it and there's some fracture involved or you <laughs> you do it over again. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, it's hard to educate the art collector clientele about that sometimes too. But at that time, my design work was really the money that I was making. And I was really, yeah. I mean, I was doing so many projects with anthropology that I was earning like a, a living, like a living annual wage from my licenses to them only. And I mean, we did over 500 products in the last 10 years together. Wow. Really crazy. I mean, I was becoming like an in-house brand there. And mm -hmm. at times we kind of talked about that and how to differentiate. And they encouraged me to license elsewhere so that there were some other things happening beyond them and things like that. Um, I remember that. Yeah. Um, and so just that whole conversation, like, what about that? You know, right. How do I do that? What, what, how do I want to do that? Right. And I wasn't, I, I was not, I still was only educated about how to do things within, within anthropology. Like I had never mm -hmm. licensed outside of anthropology. So I got approached by a few companies and I quickly sought out an agent um, and I work with Moxie and have the whole time. Um, they were representing Lada Yan's daughter at the time. And I thought, wow, what they were doing for her was so, so smart and interesting. Although they parted ways not that long after I started working with them. But they've really helped me so much in understanding some of the nuances. That I feel like now I really have a solid understanding of, you know, what I'm doing there and legal and all of those things. And they were really different because they I could see that they were <clears throat> helping Lada become a brand and not just like licensing like yeah. I think there are some 
agencies out there that will just sort of pattern slap and like license your artwork to whoever and it'll be a bag or a t-shirt or socks or a book and it doesn't really matter who picks it up someone's going to pick it up and we've sold i've always respected their approach because they come at they come at it from a different place and they do it differently and yeah certainly it was the right fit for you it was and i think it's not for everybody but i think for me i knew that i needed someone to help me set goals for the brand and think about it strategically. I'm not just going to suddenly do baby stuff, right? Like there's something that makes sense for me to have an evolution. Although left turn here, we're just talking about apparel and that's like, right? like it's a surprise. Left turn. Now I'm just, we get to do that. <laughs> it made sense. And you all will see when you see it, you'll be like, Oh, yeah, it's what you wear course. when you go to tea with tea and my things. It's, it's, <laughs> Perfect. But I think you know, that, that trajectory, it was really interesting balancing those two things. And a lot of people are like, how do you have time to do both of those careers, you know, alongside each other. And it was really like, there were times when, and I would get a check every time I got a check from a sale from the gallery. And still it feels like this. It's like a windfall of cash. And I'm like, I want a grant to keep going. <laughs> it's like, yeah, sort of amazing. Yeah, exactly. um, it is. But it's only been it's just that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, exactly. And it was sort of like only in the last few years have I really trusted that, yes, every year I was going to do a little better or about the same. And I can kind of trust that that's going to happen. And the gallery work has now superseded the licensing. And I tend to make a lot more money off of my time invested in that. But it took 10 years of doing that and not necessarily having that be the case um, or be consistent sales. And so, you know, now I'm in the position where I can really make some interesting choices in my licensing work as a result of the financial liberation from the sales of artwork. So it's like a, it's been like really important to have both components for a bunch of different reasons. Also just purely from practice too. Just being able to make those choices. You don't always have that liberty when you're starting out and you're, and you're looking for, well, and, and for you, shifting from anthropology, you know, and working with Moxie was great because they helped you focus on what was right for your brand. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a lot of there's trial and error in there. There's, you know, c- companies that are good to work with and aren't or product that turns out the way you want it to or doesn't. But you've really got a great spectrum now, I think, of things you've made and companies you've worked with. Does it feel like it's come together in a way that that feels right? Yeah. And I think that's experience in time. I've definitely had relationships with companies that I was like, whoops, you know, I should have listened to my gut on that one or, you know, something that they like Moxie will only push back when they feel like there's a really good opportunity that I'm passing up. But basically, they've helped me manage the growth of the work that was headed towards mass market whether I liked it or not. And, and so there's a component of my work that, you know, it was being copied by large retailers and big box stores. And in order to get out ahead of that and stop that from happening, I had to sort of introduce a line or a version of my work that was going to fill that need from their perspective so that I could control Mm -hmm. that. And it was like, that was one of the hardest decisions I made because I really didn't, I was not ready to be in the mass market, but you know, it was one of the sort of like, one of the few ways I felt like I could control what was happening because I was getting ripped off so much that it was like, I just needed to have a place there and, and sort of put myself there with a lot of control. And and Ray Dunn is a good close friend. Mm -hmm. Um, She married Mm -hmm. a family friend and um, I've known her for ages and she's been a good 
person to sort of check in with sometimes about some of that. Um, yeah, for sure. Because, oh my goodness. Right. And everywhere she's riding a line too with handmade things and, and her mass market things. And it's, 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 I think it's a challenge that a lot of people face in licensing because honestly, you're not going to make any money unless you sell to large scale and in such large scale. Right. I mean, it's like really, right. But there's that whole personal conversation and how great to have good guidance and mentorship to to be able to have to talk about like, what do I do here? I do remember, I think we talked mm-hmm. about a few of those things where it's like, oh my gosh, this is looking like I have to figure this mm-hmm. out because you're seeing the knockoff. So how do I just how do I balance that within myself? You know, how do I make that make sense? How do I make that okay? And then you realize it's just the life cycle. Mm-hmm. It's part of the mm-hmm. life cycle. Yeah. And I mean, it, for me, a lot of what's been rolled up in that mass market leap is like the ethical and moral implications and the sustainable mm-hmm. implications of making yes. things on that scale. Not that any scale is really different, but, you know, really brought to light some things that I needed to think about or wanted to think about or made goals for changing. And like, how do I even change? Like, and this is what I meant by my parents um, setting an example mm-hmm. for me. And it, so I'll, I use this sort of analogy a lot, but they would say when they sent me off to college, they'd be like, don't shop at Whole Foods or those fancy places shop at the local grocery store and demand that they have the organics demand that they have the options that you want, because then that's the only way that those things become mainstream and affordable and not just a luxury for the wealthy. Mm. And that's, that was what working with anthropology became like, who can afford the $120 mug? Oh, it's the same person who's going to buy a $10,000 painting. Let's be honest. And so, yeah, you're right. Um, to democratize the work and the ideas and make them affordable to a large, I mean, and still a $16 mug is still a special mug. It's not just like a cheap thing that you pick up without thinking about it. Um, And so I think, you know, for me, this sort of next chapter and, and, and COVID has helped actually bring a lot of things into focus and some of the racial tensions in the country um, I left a couple of licensees because they weren't addressing things the way I felt comfortable with, or they just were straight That's up important. having some That's major issues. And I was like, I'm not, I think I'm right. good. You figure this out on your own and I will talk. Right. But that's like asking your local grocery store to carry organic. I mean, right. it's really saying, I am not going to be able to work with you if this is how you're handling right. production or whatever it right. is. And that's not always easy to do, but I totally, I'm right there with you. I made a lot in my career. I, I worked with way too much resin mm, and, um, mm-hmm. for my own personal, um, comfort level and health probably, frankly, but yeah, I just, I, I was able then to get to the point where I was like, Mm-mm, not going to work with, I don't, that's not my choice anymore to work with companies that do certain things. One of the things that a lot of people have questioned and especially from the ceramics community and the studio pottery community is about the ethics of working for a company or with a company like Anthropology or any of the companies that I work with, honestly, was like, you know, they're, they're so grounded and handmade. And one of the aspects of that is this political decision to know the maker, have a relationship with the pot itself that's been touched by another human. And so that sort of hand, the handled quality and the, the sort of relationship that you had to seeing those pots in Anthropology that you were describing was really important mm-hmm. to me. Like when they came back to me and they were like, well, 
detail. The hand painting is a little messy. And I was like, I love it. I, I love that there, mm-hmm. there are spots that it's not consistent. Mm-hmm. I love that that's because that's I wouldn't be consistent. So the, the fact that the factory can replicate that with a hand painting is amazing. And and there is a sense of a person behind this object, right? Like there is a sense that this hasn't right. just been like clinically reproduced with a decal or something that's been really and so I think in explaining myself over and over again to the handmade ceramics community, I had to really be so crystal clear about why it was okay for me. And one of the yeah. first things that I did and do now still, whenever I start with a new company is ask them about their labor practices, how they audit com- factories. And Good. and I can't go to all the factories, obviously, but I find that it's an important conversation to have. And you can really tell a lot quickly by like whether or not, like, and if I already have a trusting relationship with someone who I know is like ethically, morally in line with me, I don't necessarily have to have that conversation if I've already done my homework about the com- company. But you know, there have been companies that I've straight up like just been like, no, I can't work with this company because of their how they're funding, how they're spending their money or whatever. Like I just doesn't feel good. So I'll find another company that can, you know, work with me or they didn't answer that question very well. <laughs> and it felt radical just to ask the question, which is crazy. I, I think that's changing a lot. But I think, you know, that's what the clothing company that we're working with, Joni, to launch this collection, which we're so excited about. And I say we, but it's like me and one employee who's worked six hours a week. So it's really me. <laughs> Because they're they're using eco eco um, uh, ecological fabrics, um, recycled plastic fabric, um, organic cottons, and better cotton initiative cottons that are like you know certified. So it, it feels super important that that you know if I'm going to make a leap into a category like that, that I'm doing it with all of my you know boxes ticked, if you will. And so I think I challenge other people to ask those hard questions, but I feel like I, I have the um, foundation underneath me and the history of designing at this point where I can ask those hard questions of companies that I work with and they kind of have to like, oh, they're like, oh, <laughs> you know, we need to answer that question or else she's not going to work with us. And, you know, I think that's a really important, you know, I recognize that pivot in my career where I can ask those hard questions and feel like I'm in a position of power, not in a position of like apologizing that I'm asking those questions. I hope everybody's thinking about this when they're listening to this, because it does start from the grassroots level. And I've, I've fortunately, I wouldn't work for a company that didn't ask those questions, but usually it was coming from some, somebody in the company, not the artists that were working with the company. So if you're the artist working with the company, asking the company the questions, the company has to ask. And, and that's, oh, that makes my heart happy. That's so good. And I um, have to just circle back to the factories. Like I, I used to think, well, I don't know, it was, was a, a long time ago, maybe when, when I was little, like things are made in China and they just go into a m- big machine and they right. out, made the other side. No, but you know, everybody who touched Molly's work was a human person, a human being who made that work. They touched it. Like I was doing sculpt reviews this morning, as a matter of fact, and I'm just blown away by the talent and a decal doesn't get on a piece without it being put on by hand. And a flower doesn't get painted unless somebody dips their brush in something and touches it to it. So I've had some relationships and worked with some of the factories you worked Mm -hmm. with. I was doing different projects at the time, but, and I know I've mentioned this, but I can specifically remember, you know, looking through a showroom full of dusty shelves of Disney stuff and stuff that was all the same and all perfect. And I was looking for a sign that they could do something that they would understand when I was trying to say, no, we want it to be handmade. Mm. We were working on a special project. And I remember this back dusty shelf and by mistake, 
they had something out there that I recognized from anthropology. It was like, <gasps> right. wait, hold everything. You talk to me because you, they're like, no, we can, we can do that. Right. Like, okay, now we can talk, but they have to have that, that factory at the same time. Like, are they fair? Are they, do right. they get it? Who's leading their, the charge there? Are they sim- sympathetic to all of, all of what we're talking about? So just ask the questions is my my point. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, one of the funny things that's happened is that I feel like I can see like at Target, there's a lot of fair trade glass, like there's Smith and Hawken light, like I'm starting to see it show up. And, you know, if I'm posed with the option to buy one thing that's fair trader versus not, and it's like a dollar different Mm -hmm. or something like, what do I care on my end? Like a dollar isn't going to make the difference for me or $2 or whatever it is. Um, So I vote for that. You know, you're casting a vote every time you, but the thing that has been interesting is that there is, there is like a trickle up and trickle down and there is demand from the customer in certain parts of the country for that. And um, there's, they're, they're seeing demand up the chain. And so they're, you know, the factory and manufacturer where I license some of my tableware, you know, they're starting to see some demand for ethical and, and sustainable goods, mostly sustainable, but like they're mm-hmm. kind of scratching their heads about it. And so one of the best things that mm-hmm. has ever happened is that I came across this sourcing agency called To The Market. And um, it was started by Jane Mosbacher and Morris. And she wrote a book mm-hmm. called mm-hmm. By The Change. And um, it's a for-profit company. It's a sourcing agency. And they go and vet factories. But it's an ethic. Like, she's really focused on cutting the sex trade and human trafficking off at the knees and giving people empowerment through employment. And she worked with mm-hmm. um, the, the McCain Foundation for a long time. Started, doing work with human trafficking and she felt like the best way to affect change was to connect american companies with production ethical production overseas Mm -hmm. and so (sighs) i it was like i cried when i met her because i was like you this is a company that i've needed to have happen and needed you years ago thank you so much for doing Mm -hmm. this like i can't even like don't even know where to start and so i've been doing slowly been doing more and more projects with them but now I get to go to these companies and say don't tell me it's too hard and don't tell me that you don't know how to find these companies because I hear they are here you call her you're gonna have to pay for it but it's possible and I'm sick of hearing that it's not possible or we'll get to it or you know like I get a lot of lip service when I ask those hard questions so now I was like you're a major gun in my holster right like I can go in now Mm. and be like here there's no excuse here it is right like you cannot tell me that this isn't possible and it might not be possible for the price points that they're demanding which is a really good thing to question um you know if that's the case but i think that you know so then it wasn't happening even with that sort of tool put in front of some of the companies that i work with and so i was like forget it i'm gonna go do it myself then and show that the customer wants it from me and show that that's an important thing to them and so it was only like a year and a half ago that I really like started laying tracks for all of that. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're working with this life, uh, low tides, ocean products, doing recycled plastic chairs. We're doing a whole bunch of clothing this summer. That's all recycled plastic clothing, you know, from um, bottles, you know, it's just like all coming. It's like the world needed me to be a designer that needed those things. And I think it's just, hopefully it's paving the way for other people. You have a voice you're a thinker. And I, I just have to, I know we could talk about this forever and you'll probably have to come back um, because there's, (laughs) we're leaving out years, but you know, I just, I work with a lot of 
fantastic artists. And, but another thing that I, that I use when I talk to people is one of the things that's really helpful for you, if you're an artist wanting to work with companies is you come with ideas, Mm -hmm. come with resources, like you're saying, but you also come with wicked wise, smart, thoughtful ideas for product that I wouldn't have thought of without you. So, you know, it's, it's, um, being willing to ask the questions, put your ideas out there, come with your extra pots and your, you know, extra crate. And, and because that's how change happens. That's how inventions happen. That's how new things and new ideas are put into the world, or we can start to affect change too. Yeah. And honestly, I have to just reiterate that, like, I'm not, that's not happening with every single collection that I'm making. And I have to say that it's a slow change that's going to happen with a consistent demand, like the same with organic. So like in the eighties, you didn't find organic stuff in the grocery store. Now it's everywhere. It's even at Walmart. But (laughs) my hope is that in my lifetime, that it'll be more the norm than the exception that you'll see ethical and sustainable options everywhere. And that you can make that choice in, in how you shop and how you do. And if you're curious about more, I recommend her book by the change because it's overwhelming. You feel like you could absolutely, you have to pick your battles. Like if it's just coffee that you're going to make sure is fair trade, then fine. You've made a huge change there or wherever, yeah, you know? And so, for, absolutely. so for me, if I'm putting product out, okay, yep. I'm still putting some product out, but we're working to like become plastic neutral. So we're affecting change based on, some of the decisions that we have to make like the necessary evils. Right. So, because right now they're, we're not finding the alternatives or whatever it is. So, you know, I think that I just want to like, it's so easy to feel like you're not doing enough or not um, affecting change, but literally just by asking those hard questions, you're affecting change. Mm -hmm. And I don't know how else to reiterate that, but I don't want people to come away from this conversation feeling like they're not doing enough or what they're supposed to. Right. Because that's not true. Just think about it. Start thinking about it. Really. And I think if you just chose one aspect of your business, if it's like, you know, I'm going to remove all plastic from my packaging, that's a huge step in, in figuring Mm -hmm. it out, you know, and, and that you don't always have the opportunity to do that. And so when you do, you run with it like whole hog and you, you, you plow ahead. And it's like with this clothing company, I really wanted more sizing options and I wanted it to be a much larger or size inclusive range, but it's like, where do you pick your battles? You know, like I don't, you Mm -hmm. know, and so I had to kind of they already are more size inclusive than many brands, but I was like, you know, I feel like everyone should be able to wear Molly Hatch, but it's like, you know, right. maybe next time we can push that a little harder or, you know, it's a collaboration with this company that you're working with that knows what their limitations are. Sometimes they're willing to stretch if they feel like it's something that's really going to make a difference. And if you keep asking and you keep coming, you are a battering ram, about it, then mm-hmm. you hopefully will get some. Right. And I, and to reiterate that, I think, I think that's a good point because we can, you know, it's one small step at a time, but if you find yourself, you know, nodding, like, just think about what that one small step is that you can do because, you know, one drop and another drop leads to right, a bucket leads to a lot yeah. of change. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me before we, yes, we have to before, wrap up here. before we have to tell me about the clothing, yeah. Ms. Molly. So, I mean, I'm a tableware company. Everyone knows my tableware and we all love my bakeware and my cake stands and all of the things. Um, and my your books, glasses, and my, yeah, yeah, everyone's and your books and your cards and right. all the good things. But this opportunity presented itself during COVID or just before, like this time last year, it was like, 
early 2020, just before the um, uh, lockdowns and stuff, um, to work with Joni and Joni Clothing Company. And, and they're UK based. They're kind of like a mod cloth in the UK, except they awesome. have... You, they, you, they use these ecological and sustainable fabrics and recycled plastic fabrics and um, organic cottons, like I said. And uh, the, the aesthetic was just so just right. So we've got tea dresses and t-shirts and skirts, and they're mm. all like my favorite designs and most popular designs from my tableware translated into repeat patterns and things like that for amazing the clothing. And I just, there's a jumpsuit and, you know, a bunch of graphic tees and some sweatshirts with embroidery. And I'm just, uh, you know, lots of stripes and dots, of course. And, um, yeah, yeah. Floral. You must be having a ball. It's they're so, so fun. fun. And and it's just it's so on brand for me and they really got it. And we're gonna do another collection to follow up hopefully next year. We're already starting to talk about what that is. So, you know, uh I I really hope that people enjoy having a cup of tea with uh me in as many ways as possible, whether it's <laughs> wearing the dress and having a cup of tea or a cup of tea and they all coordinate. It's really fun. I'm so excited for this. I'm so excited because of it seems to that everything's coming full circle for this. This year you're an artist. Yes, you're a ceramic artist, but you that does it doesn't stop there. So I know you've been able to have licenses with other things, but this one seems to tick a lot of boxes with a company that's great for to work for. They're ethical, they're making change, they're fresh. You guys, all the information that we've talked about today will be in the show notes, but I'm really excited about the clothing and the fact that you can go find out about it now today. So congratulations on that. Yeah. And I, you know, we'll get you some, of course, and I just can't wait to see how people live with it and, and are out there with it. Yeah. I, I really appreciate talking with you and yeah, I'm, I'm just beyond things are, things are good. We really will have to do this again because I have more questions. But in 10 years from now, what do you wish that your brand would be looking like? Oh, I want, I would love, love, love to, uh, in an ideal world, in a fantasy world, I would have all of my production taken back and I would be doing most of it myself and largely focused on just the tableware. And I would be doing it ethically and sustainably. And I, you know, that's what people want from me. And I love, love, love designing and, and making. And, you know, I think building on the core of what I've got there would be so fun. And having that ability to take it back would be amazing to be able to have control over it. Um, You know, there's things that people want from me and that's a collaboration that I don't get to always decide what is the end product. I mean, I, I approve things at the end, but it's not like I always get to decide with, you know, carte blanche, like what the products are going to be design wise and things like that. There's a lot of art direction and they might already have someone else in the assortment that's similar or whatever. And if I could just be, you know, my own creative director, which I already am, but like ultimately, you know, have it all and not have to worry about the like distribution of all that. That would be great. Wouldn't it? (laughs) I'll look forward to that. (laughs) Well, we'll see. I love that. Yeah. Lots of fantasy. And I do. Well, let's, let's keep those going. It's what, it's what keeps us getting up in the morning and doing more work and keeping it going. Well, so it's been fun that. watching you manifest some of the conversations that we had about ideas around some of those things ourselves. And I, I you're doing it. Yeah. 
I, we've had some nice. pretty awesome conversations over the years and I really appreciate how much of a touch point you've been for me at certain times. So thank you so much. And um, I can't wait to hear what everyone's response is to this. I'm sure they'll have more questions. <laughs> I can't wait either. I can't wait either. Can you, do you remember the three people that are inspiring you that you sent me? Oh no, I don't even remember. What did I say? <laughs> You said Luke Edward Hall. Oh, yes. Okay. Yep. He's an architectural digest. He's an interior designer and architect and a ceramic designer in, in the UK, but he writes for Financial Times and AD slot. I love it. And you said Bryony Ray Sheridan. Yeah. So she's the she's the homeware aspire for Liberty London and her feed is oh. like Oh my god. <laughs> Both Luke Edward Hall and her. I mean, it's so good. Oh my gosh. Sometimes I go and look at these ahead of time and sometimes I wait to be surprised, but you know, it's just like, oh, such juicy Liberty London. There's, there's a place that I could just move right in. And then Jordan, Jordan Fernie. And she's been really interesting to watch lately because of all the changes she's been making. You know, she started Oh Happy Day and the Color Factory and everything, Mm -hmm. but she's been, it's been kind of wild watching her like go through navigating her life um, after selling everything they owned in San Francisco, traveling the world and landing yeah. in New York and now buying a Hudson home and renovating it. So, you know, I'm, yeah. I'm excited to watch. You know, I just think we have to go with what we have to listen to those things and not, oh, I've, I've been having this conversation a lot. Like your brand is just a part of you. Mm-hmm. You get to make the decisions. You, if it leads you too much, then you get stuck. Mm-hmm. So I love Molly that you're somebody that is not afraid to ask the questions and push and ask yourself really like what's important to me, yeah. what's going to happen next. Yeah. Agreed. So. It helps having a fine art career on the backside of the whole design. <laughs> it helps like a lot. <laughs> anyway. Well, I'm glad. Thank you for today. I just, I love talking to you. It always ins- inspires me and it, today is no different. Well, so likewise. Appreciate it. Thanks, Margo. That's it for this episode of Windowsill Chats. Thanks so much for being here with me. It's just so great to be able to bring you these conversations with the fantastic people and wonderful friends that I've met and made along the way. Make sure you subscribe to Windowsill Chats on your favorite podcast app and please share it with a friend. And if this episode spoke to you, I'd really appreciate it if you would also leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can just go to the bottom of the episode you've just listened to and it'll let you leave a review. If you have any questions or want to check out more details or inspiration that we talked about, head over to the show notes at windowsillchats.com or tantostudio.com. They'll both take you to the same place. I can't wait to share more stories with you again next week. I value your time and I absolutely believe in your potential. Have a great one, everyone, and stay creatively curious.